0: learn strategy America's Broadcast network.com thank you for listening dot com thank you for listening well good afternoon everyone uh, thank you for having me on today and <laughs> I apologize for
1: affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare but for many the government mandate caused more problems than it solved this is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare Liberty HealthShare Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
3: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchek. I'm your host for this show. We alternate weeks with Dr. Hal Schertz. Uh, the uh, Docs for Patient uh, Care Foundation sponsors the Doctor's Lounge. We are a 501c3 organization. We are the only organization that is composed exclusively of full-time practicing physicians. So we take care of patients all day and some of the nights occasionally. Uh, we take what time we have uh, in addition to that and, and study health care policy, uh, learn it as best we can, and then we bring it to you. Uh, We bring it to you with this radio show, and we bring it to you by other avenues as well, such as our meeting coming up in October in Orlando on direct primary care, which will be our third annual meeting uh, for that topic. Today's show is a first for the Doctors' Lounge. We've been on the air almost four years, and uh, this is a first for two reasons. The first is this is the first time that we've brought the show before a live audience. Let me hear from you live audience. Great. Right. Good deal. Thank you. Um, so, And, and uh, the second thing is that we have a very special guest, I think one of the most noteworthy guests that we've had in our four years, a uh, gubernatorial candidate for governor of Georgia, Mr. Hunter Hill. Hunter, thank you so much for being with us. Well,
4: thank you. I'm glad to be with you.
3: So this uh, this fulfills one of the um, foundation's goals, which is to educate, to bring folks together, such as policymakers and physicians. Uh, we are here on behalf of our patients uh, because this is a terribly underrepresented group, right? We have a healthcare system that has been so heavily institutionalized. Uh, and is so top-heavy that uh, doctors, and more importantly, uh, their patients, uh, seem more and more to come last. And so what we're trying to do here is bring physicians on behalf of our patients together with policymakers and try to make some good things happen. Uh, so, uh, Hunter, I'm, I'm not going to do uh, – I'm going to let you introduce yourself, right? This is early in the campaign cycle,
4: so uh, just go ahead and tell us a little about yourself in general. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be here um- I'm a lifelong Georgian, grown up here my whole life and got a chance to go to West Point, played football up there, and then became an infantry officer upon graduation and went down and became an airborne ranger and then led five different teams on three combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've been a small business owner and uh, married to my beautiful wife, Shannon, and we have two lovely children. And, um, you know, I got into the state senate. I was passionate about making policy because – when I was in my third tour in Afghanistan, I just saw how the government misuses our resources. And so I wanted to go instead of just implement policy, I wanted to make it. And I got frustrated uh, as a state senator observing that many of the folks that, you know, campaign on some of these more conservative issues uh, were not willing to make the hard choices to implement some of these things into policy. And as you know, health care is such a driver. It's so government-centric these days. Uh, and if we don't start to address these long term challenges, not only at, at the federal level, but at the state level, you know, I just get concerned about the, f- the f- fiscal health of the country if we don't make these hard choices.
3: So, in uh, regarding Georgia then, and many of the issues that, uh, that Georgians face in health care policy and health care delivery, uh, what do you consider to be, you know, the three or four most important things that we face and, uh, you know, kind of prioritize those for us and, and tell us how you would approach those.
4: Well, generally, you know, the bottom line is, is the government brings in resources and it's our job to spend that money in high return ways for taxpayers. And there are some things that the private sector does very well and there's some things that the government has to do. And what I have observed is that the government has become a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. We need to be focusing on the core competencies of government, the things that, candidly, only the government can do, and we should do those with excellence and leave the rest of the things to the private sector. And, you know, I think we're going to talk about this more, but one of the big areas where I think the government is way too highly involved is in the area of healthcare. care. It's not a core competency of government, and we are not uh, – we are preventing – uh, the healthcare community, and in particular, patients from receiving the care that they should, because of government intervention.
3: So, if we're if we're
4: talking about some of the the major hot button issues
3: um, at the state level, and there are several of those, probably the biggest one being Medicaid. Um, what are your thoughts about how we approach that really big problem, right, Medicaid? spending in Georgia has tripled roughly from 2000 to 2015. And now the Medicare tab, I think, is about $9 billion in Georgia, something like that. Um, the, That's right. You know, it's about $5,000, I think, per, per Medicare uh, recipient. So, so how do we go about fixing that in a system where it's hard to figure out who should get
4: coverage and how much they get? Uh, what are your thoughts on how to approach that? Well, Medicaid was created as a safety net program to make sure that there was a baseline of care for the least among us. Over time, though, it's sort of expanded to become more of a Cadillac plan, but the problem with it is that the government mandates that uh, the health care community provides uh, basically a full range of services, but then they only pay the health care system about 76 cents on the dollar for cost. And so what ends up happening is that there's a hidden tax uh, on all consumers that are bri- buying private insurance uh, to cover the downfall for the health care system. And what that does is it actually really discriminates against the small business owner, the person that's really having trouble paying for their health care bills. And, um, and so what we need to do to reform Medicaid is to not make it such a um, – basically a Cadillac plan. I think we've got to make the hard choices and say what level of service are we going to give and so we list list out what we're going to provide for Medicaid patients, and then once we choose what those are, we're going to need to pay a, a higher reimbursement cost to perform that service so that there's not a hidden tax on the average everyday consumer. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. I, I think if
3: I understand you correctly, and, and the, the physicians here will, will understand this well, is that uh, – we, we end up having that redistribution of wealth inside our own practices where we tolerate uh, reimbursements for Medicaid that are often below cost um, and, and tolerate that only because there's enough folks that aren't Medicaid to make up the
4: difference. Is that sort of what you mean? That is what I mean, is that, you know, it's not an honest accounting system. It's sort of a hidden <clears throat> cost on the system um, and, and we need to make sure people understand what they're paying for. And I think if we're going to deliver essentially free services, people need to at least know what it costs. Um, you know, we've removed personal responsibility from health care and uh, free market principles. That's why I put forth a bill in the State Senate for direct primary care, because it would reinvigorate the doctor-patient relationship and make the person that the patient, if you will, know what they're paying every month for an agreed to list of services exactly and and you bring up a, a, one of the biggest issues
3: that, that we talk about, which is the whole issue of price transparency uh, and understanding you you can't drive down the cost of something if you don't even know what that cost is. and mm-hmm. so you know that's that's where the direct primary care model comes in because you know exactly what you're paying every month for a specified range of services and you know there are very specific criteria for if you go outside that range what the cash prices are for things and so it's very easy to uh, to see what costs are and once you understand what costs are then you can
4: start to drive those prices down well that's right and here's another thing i would like to look at for medicaid is to reinfuse that personal responsibility and that ownership of one's health um, I think we need to look at small copays uh, for our Medicaid recipients, not because of the money side as much. It's just a, it's an aspect of skin in the game and a recognition that when you go to a, a hospital, services are being rendered and, and delivered, and there is a cost for that. And so there should be a cost relationship and a payment relationship there um, to, to reinvigorate that sense of personal responsibility and ownership. Definitely an
3: option. Definitely agree with the concept of, of you know, there has to be skin in the game uh, when you're you know, at least paying some of your own health care expenses. What you're suggesting kind of reminds me of what uh, the, uh, the new uh, uh, CMS uh, Secretary Seema Verma did in Indiana, which was to institute a system that required those monthly payments, but the payments actually went into a health savings account as opposed to being uh, insurance premiums. Um, and that is uh, something that's gained a lot of traction and I think was part of why she is uh, where she is in Washington at the moment.
4: Well, what, you know, and, and the thing, thing about public policymakers is they're not experts on, you know, what everybody in this audience does on a daily basis in terms of delivering health care services. We need to bring the experts to the table. we got to bring um, the, the insurance providers to the table as well and come up with a holistic solution because what we have right now is just – it's just simply not working.
3: Agreed. Uh, And I I think it's – it may be time to consider a uh, sort of a a different sort of non-political approach to this because, you know, we know in Washington that the Republicans tried and failed three times last year to reform health care on a political paradigm as opposed to an economic paradigm – and so I think it's going to be time pretty soon to, uh, to look at, uh, at ways of doing that. Um, any other thoughts about uh, any other ideas about Medicaid? I mean, this is uh, – Medicaid, there was an interesting study uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013 and just had an update published uh, more recently that the, the, the health status, if you look at a few measurable health outcomes in hypertension, diabetes, depression – I uh, forget what the fourth one is off the top of my head, that, that Medicaid, Medicaid patients um, don't do any better uh, in terms of their health than folks that are self-pay. And, in fact, that Medicaid patients in this Oregon study use the ER 40% more than folks who were self-pay. So, you know, it, it raises a lot of challenges to the assumption that if you put an insurance card in somebody's hand, that things just magically get better.
4: Well, right, exactly. I mean, insurance has been changed uh, enormously in healthcare. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. Insurance used to be something that you paid into to then kick in when you uh, the cost of your care would exceed what you could pay. You know, it's, it's sort of a catastrophic plan. And insurance has shifted over time to becoming you pay in every month and you get the entire aspect of healthcare delivered to you. Um, including your, you know, maintenance, so to speak, which are your uh, monthly visits or quarterly visits to the doctor. And that's just not uh, the best way. That's why I'm for health savings accounts and other ways where people can own the maintenance of their health care and manage it themselves. But then they're paying into a plan that if there is a tragedy or a catastrophic event, that's when their insurance would kick in. And that's what direct primary care really helps facilitate. Indeed, and that's uh, you know we've got some data that
3: uh, that that show that uh, that we can reduce costs with direct primary care by maybe about two thirds, um, even if you do a fully tiered with the the primary care services, cash prices for minor things outside that basic scope of services, and even including the catastrophic plan to cover the god forbid events. True insurance, right? This is insurance that protects you against a catastrophic but very rare event, which is no longer what what health insurance does. Exactly. All right, we've reached the end of the first segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us.
5: Thank you.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
3: Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchek, your host this week. Thanks for sticking with us. We have a very special guest, Hunter Hill, uh, a candidate uh, for governor of Georgia. And we're talking about health care issues uh, and then maybe uh, some other some things. So we were finishing up. Um, in the, uh, the the first segment, uh, talking about Medicaid, and I think we kind of finished up that conversation. I think there's a couple of other items of interest at the healthcare policy state level uh, that are worth talking about, and I think one of those is something called certificate of need, uh, which if unless you're sort of in healthcare, it, you don't have a full understanding of it, but rest assured, uh, it makes healthcare less accessible, uh, far more expensive, and far more top-heavy in terms of administration. So, um, why don't we talk about that for a minute?
4: Well, sure. Yeah, certificate of need is basically a program that, where the state determines whether there's a need for a medical facility or medical equipment. Um, it's very uh, state-centric. It's not. Decentralized, like you would want a more free market approach. Um, The advocates of of, of certificate of need would suggest that because healthcare, um, a lot of it is driven by Medicaid and this fact that we have to deliver services to whoever comes in the door, imtala, whatever. um, That if certain hospitals don't have or medical facilities don't have an emergency room or full uh, full service hospital. Um, that they shouldn't go out and compete for non-Medicaid or charity care um, services because then it would mess up the payer mix, so to speak, of hospitals. That's the that's what the opponents would say of getting rid of health, uh, the certificate of need. I've always advocated for getting rid of CON because I think having it there is like a false way to hold up the house of cards that is current health care finance. It creates a system where – uh, we're not really understanding where all the broken aspects of healthcare finance are, and so if you were to pull out certificate of need and allow more free market principles in healthcare, you would be- begin to uncover uh, what is really broken about healthcare, and I think make services and and healthcare delivery costs go down over time. Exactly, uh, you know
3: the way we talk about it is: imagine if you were trying to open a restaurant in the middle of town. And you weren't allowed to open that restaurant unless all the other restaurants gave you permission to open that restaurant. So it's a way for existing large, powerful players to suppress,
4: Mm
3: -hmm. um, you know, any kind of competition. And, you know, the rationale that they say is that, of course, the more facilities are out there, the more they get utilized. And, and, you know, there's a decent amount of data to show that, that that's just not true. Uh, and, you know, it, there's a long history behind the certificate of need. There used to be a federal incentive in place for those laws to be passed at the state level, and that's gone away. And, and you know, some states have gotten rid of certificate of need. I think it's some, what, 36, I think, Brian, something like that, that have at least eliminated it at some level. Um, there's different flavors of CON, right? You have CON for imaging centers, for surgery centers, for hospitals. And I think even some states, even if a doctor wants to open another office, they have to go through the, the CON process. So uh, it, it's something that adds a huge amount of expense and burden and is and and really, like you said, props up the house of cards.
4: Well, continue, to continue your analogy, it's also like uh, if a restaurant wanted to open up, they would basically say, well, we only do – um, you're only allowed to open up a, um, a restaurant if it's a buffet. You know, you can't open up just like a steakhouse. Excellent. Yes. Um, it, it forces you to be, you know, all things to all people, and not something that is a specialty. Exactly. So, when you get to be governor, how do we how do we fix that? Well, it it, it is holistic because I, I took on uh, that situation as a state senator, and so I learned a lot about it from. You know, the CEOs of hospitals and things like that, because they they called me pretty quickly when we we dropped <laughs> fancy that. We dropped a bill on that. And what I did learn is that it is this house of cards that holds together the broken uh, payer mix because the argument is if you um, are going to care for patients that are not that are not Medicaid and you're only going to be paying, you know, getting full pay patients, then you're going to take those full pay patients away from the hospital that is essentially losing money on, on the Medicaid uh, uh, recipients. And so the whole reason I wanted to loosen the CON was so that we could uncover the really broken drivers of healthcare, so that we can really see what is broken about it and then address it. Um, and the reality is it's a lot goes back to Medicaid reform and figuring out how we can, fig- we can look at the very services that we do want to deliver to our Medicaid population and for those vital services, we need to pay 100% of the cost um, because otherwise it's a hidden tax, and then you can get rid of the CON and let doctors, if they want to go out, and get whoever kind of patients they want and, uh, and allow more free market and, and allow the free market to prevail in that case.
3: Uh, maybe we fix the situation where a third of all Georgia physicians don't take Medicaid, which, again, affects access and affects costs and affects all of those things and drives them to emergency rooms, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Well, that's right. And, you know, in TALA, there needs to be more stabilization and dismissal to other um, less expensive means of care. So not not doing a full set of services in the emergency room, but having uh, emergency care centers in and around um, ERs. But, I mean, again, all this is... It's got to be thought through fully in the reform of CON and Medicaid. So let's talk
3: about, for the last sort of hardcore healthcare care topic, uh, it, it's not a state question. Uh, Obamacare is obviously federal law, not a state law. Obviously affects the states profoundly. Uh, but in, a, in an electoral campaign of this magnitude, um, I think it's going to come up from a political standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, so, what do you say about obamacare
4: and 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 where do we where do
3: we take it from here?
4: Well, Obamacare was the most unconstitutional law our nation's ever passed because um, the the Tenth Amendment clearly states that issues that are not spe- specified in the Constitution should be you know uh, led by the states or implemented by the states so um it's it's caused so many problems because it's got a broken philosophy behind it 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 essentially I mean, we've seen what's happened when um, men have to purchase uh, childbearing coverage. Um, I mean, it's just—it's it's government run amok, and it doesn't make sense, and that's why costs have gone up so high. And it's really just driven more people to sign up for government-sponsored health care through Medicaid and, and things of that sort. It's devoid of all free market principles, and it's got to change because it's going to ruin our health care system if we don't address it. It's also driven up the, uh, the opioid crisis because it, it highlighted pain in ways that were traditionally not um, rewarded, so to speak, for hospitals to address in such meaningful ways. And, um, you know, people were encouraged or hospitals were to manage the pain in such a way that uh, it, it made patients, when they left the hospital, more craving or addicted to almost opioids on the way out of the hospital exactly i mean that's
3: you know when they talked about making pain the fifth vital sign and putting these pain scales in hospital rooms and pushing folks to uh to fully alleviate pain as opposed to make folks comfortable uh, you know it it sounds kind of cold hearted on the front end but the bottom line is now we've got you know a, a horrible epidemic to deal with
4: well and it's very concerning to me long term from a, again from a philosophical standpoint government centric healthcare is going to drive out your more entrepreneurial, high-end, uh, doctors from wanting to even go to medical school and to be in the profession because it removes the notion that a doctor might be somewhat wanting to have, uh, wealth in their life. In other words, the presupposition of government-centric healthcare is that everyone's gonna operate on altruistic terms uh, and, and work for the good of the fellow man. It's wonderful to work for the good of the fellow man, but you also need to make sure that there's incentives in place to reward the excellence and the, and the high intellect, um, you know, of, of our best and brightest wanting to go into medicine. Agreed. And
3: it's, you know, in, in, in doctor families, you know, you find more and more physicians like myself who um, – have uh, Have not encouraged their their offspring to to go into medicine for for that very reason, so um, we've we 've got a comment here. Dr. Brian Hill is going to share some thoughts
0: more of a question than a comment, but just going back to the DPC direct primary care idea, how would you perhaps see that playing into the space of actually helping improve access to real health care to the Medicaid population? Do you see that playing a potential role? in that space.
4: Absolutely. So if you're going to create an environment where people can use their own resources and and pay a monthly fee for an agreed to list of services where insurance not is not going to skim off the top, it's 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 directly doctor and patient, then once that sort of industry begins to recreate itself because this really was a a lot of the ways that doctors and patients worked together before government involvement. Then we can use Medicaid to um, subsidize or even fully fund and Medicaid patients' um, um, monthly payments. And so now a doctor is you're drastically increasing doctor-patient relationships and access to the to those that most need it.
3: Excellent. Agreed. Agreed. Um, okay,
4: so I th- any other
3: things you want to talk about regarding health care in Georgia? And other, after that, we'll just let you
4: talk about whatever you want. I think you've tapped the knowledge of healthcare <laughs> in my head. I need, I need you all to educate me. Um, now, you know, one of the things that, that I truly believe about being a governor or an effective policymaker is that we're not experts. You know, we're, we, we lean on people that have their boots on the ground every day in that industry um, I've learned a lot, um, you know, from, from Brian through the years and, and um, other policy think tanks. But the bottom line is we need leaders that have a, a philosophy, and then we can take the, the experts like we have in this room uh, to help create the policy. Cause I, and my philosophy is this. I think when you have more personal responsibility and free market principles in healthcare we can work together to get the best policies that are going to deliver results for taxpayers and and just the general people in our state.
3: Very good. Well, as it turns out, we're about at the end of the segment, so that timed out very well. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Mr. Hunter Hill, candidate for governor of Georgia. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak at your service this week. Thanks very much for joining us. The Doctor's Lounge is supported by the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 dedicated to the education of legislators, bureaucrats, physicians, patients. Uh, just about everyone who has a stake in healthcare, which means just about every soul on the planet. Uh, We thank you for joining us today. We've got some interesting stuff to talk about, especially on the wake of uh, Dr. Hal's show last week with Marion Mass as his guest um, talking about uh, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that they were able to publish that finally puts the shortcomings of electronic medical records in the national spotlight in the journal in a way that we haven't had uh, an opportunity to do before, and that's, that's terrific. Uh, it does point to sort of a broader picture of sort of a different approach to healthcare reform that may be taking shape, and we will talk about that in detail. It'll be the topic of our show today. Now, before we get to that, I just want to hit up on some news topics, some stuff sort of at the top of the show to, uh, to talk about, and the first one I think you've all heard already. It's come out in the last 48 hours or so, uh, which uh, President Trump uh, fires VA secretary David Skulkin, Shulkin, after uh, fourteen months of, of service um, for Donald Trump. He was also the last cabinet holdover from the Obama administration. And you can read the general details just about anywhere. But what I wanted to do from a, from a healthcare standpoint is maybe look at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, the news reports will tell you about the, that there was a, he had a problem with a lavish trip. Uh, that uh, i guess he put too much of this on the government tab he accepted a gift uh, tickets to i think wimbledon from uh, someone in britain uh, and all this stuff is sort of verboten apparently um, you know it's a common theme there are other folks that are near or dear to us that have had similar issues with trips and gifts and use of government money and stuff so uh, you wonder how this stuff happens and i still and I wonder if you know, folks that are supposed to advise these leaders uh, perhaps advise them badly because I can't imagine that these, these experienced folks uh, regarding Washington would make mistakes this obvious – at least they appear obvious after the fact – unless somebody was, was advising them badly. But in the wake of that report, uh, David Skulkin then accused subordinates – and White House operatives are trying to undermine his position and to, to try to get him fired. So that makes sense too. That, it, you know, What a great way to get your leader fired if you want him out uh, by giving them bad advice and then probably tipping someone else off on it. Uh, and uh, so that, that – um, but that stuff you can read anywhere. What I did is I went and looked for different sorts of publications covering this. And so I found one um, from uh, Military Times. Uh, which I guess is a publication that serves the armed forces. Uh, I confess up front I don't know a lot about it, and I've not read anything there before, but I wanted to get an idea of how the military uh, was, was thinking about this and how veterans were thinking about this. And so um, I did find some interesting stuff in here. Apparently uh, veterans groups um, such as the American Legion really liked um secretary skulkin and have said they will miss him uh they're sad to hear that that uh, that he's going uh you know yes they've said the niceties about looking forward to working with the next uh person uh who's been nominated to replace which is apparently the white house physician uh the the, the personal white house physician and uh apparently this is someone who's not had any leadership experience in such a role so it should be interesting but i was a little surprised I have to say to to discover that that veteran groups seem very much to like Secretary Skulkin, and that uh, you know it 's interesting that one he 's fired in the first place, but I guess after you get you know set up by your staff and again that 's my opinion and conjecture uh, and then uh, ratted out by them I guess that's that 's what has to happen, but it seems to be a common theme. I hope the folks who replace them uh, understand the hazards of uh, of getting advice from people that that they may or may not uh, be able to trust but uh, interesting situation so the second story that i want to talk to you about it's not really a news story but it's a it's a publication that was uh, published on march 13th so what's that going to be about two weeks ago a little bit more um came from harvard medical school and it was uh i don't know what they call it a special communication it was in the in the journal of the medical american medical i can't talk the journal of the american medical association JAMA, which docs all know uh and this was a um a special communication entitled Healthcare Spending in the United States and Other High-Income Countries. Right? We've seen articles like this before, Uh, but this is interesting, one, because of the uh, mistakes that they continue to make, and I don't know if they continue to make the mistakes out of ignorance or out of service to an agenda. we will let you be the judge. But this was yet another one of these articles written about how much the United States spends on healthcare, comparing that to expenditures of other high-income countries and pointing out all of the horrible disparities. So let's walk through uh, exactly what their uh, results were, and, and and none of this is going to surprise you. But, uh, we'll go ahead and do that anyway. This is in two thousand. This is two thousand sixteen data, so as recent as you can get. In two thousand sixteen, the United States spent nearly twice as much as ten other high-income countries on medical care and performed less well. On population health outcomes, right? And this is the same crap we've heard time and time again. And if you go to the actual results, and walk through this, what do they find? Okay, in 2016, the U.S. spent 17.8% of its gross domestic product on health care spending. Uh, that's about twice as much as other countries, ranging from Australia that spent 9.6%, Switzerland 12.4%, etc., 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 documenting that the U.S. had the highest proportion of health insurance, the lowest proportion of smokers, the highest proportion of obese people at 70.1% for the United States. And yet, and this is, you've heard this before, um, stop me if you've heard it before, but life expectancy, life expectancy in the United States was the lowest of all 11 countries that were in the comparison at 78.8 years for the United States, with a range in the other countries of 80.7 to 83.9 years, with the mean of all the other non-U.S. countries being 81.7 against our 78.8. And, yeah, I've heard this before, infant mortality was the highest in the United States, 5.8 deaths per 1,000 live births versus 3.6% for all the other 11 countries that were in the comparison. Now, you've heard this before. I'm not going to belabor the point. You've heard me talk about this before. Life expectancy is a terrible measure of the performance of a health care system. Life expectancy measures the social conditions, right? One, you need to have clean air and clean water. Uh, And number two, uh, literacy, income, in um, lifestyle, right? All of these obese patients – and by the way, I don't believe that obesity is, is the responsibility of your doctor. The, the weight I carry around my middle is not my doctor's fault. It's my fault and nobody else's. Uh, and, and lifestyle, and, and those are the things that regulate – and genetics, That regulate lifestyle. Most of these other countries have a far less genetically diverse makeup than the United States has. We've been through this all before. I'm not going to go through the whole thing again. But if you've listened to me at all, you know what the, the shortcomings are of trying to use infant mortality and life expectancy as any kind of a valid measure of the performance of a healthcare system. Yet here are the folks from Havid. Doing exactly the same thing as everyone has always done. Uh, I certainly would expect more from the medical school that once again most recently was voted the best medical school in the United States. I would expect better. So here's more that's in the study. Uh, the, the, the number of doctors per population, 2.6 physicians per 1,000, is about the same. 11.1 nurses per 1,000 population is the same in all of the countries in the comparison. Not much difference between the number of doctors per patient population, number of nurses per patient population, number of hospital beds per patient population are all about the same. Right? We have the same utilization, and this is very, very important. Listen to this. We have the same utilization as other countries for hospital admissions, common operations like coronary artery bypass grafting grafting, hip replacement, knee replacement. We operate about at, at about the same utilization levels as other countries. Why is this important? Because how many times do we hear the do-gooders? And the social engineers, and the folks who fancy themselves smart enough to tell the rest of society what to do—that utilization is the problem. We overutilize, right? What's the what's the great uh, mantra of the quality argument? Is p- physicians get paid by fee for service, and that means that there's too much incentive to overutilize. There's too much incentive to overdeliver care. Too much incentive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this study, and the Havid people don't even pick up on this, but it's there. Is this study proves that's wrong? That fee, we have a fee for service system, but it doesn't encourage overutilization. Or if it does, you don't see it here. You know the rates of utilization of, of high profit things like hospital admissions and orthopedic procedures. Rates of utilization are the same. What they didn't even investigate, incredibly. Is How much do those procedures cost? Yeah, we do about the same number of hip replacements per 1,000 population, but what's the hip replacement cost in Australia? What's it cost in Switzerland? What's it cost in Japan versus what it costs in the United States? How about seeing if there's any difference in cost there? Didn't even look at that. They did find a couple of things. That do point to reasons why there are cost differences. And these won't surprise you. Again, they kind of mention them, but don't really give them the attention they deserve. Pharmaceuticals. How much do we spend per capita on pharmaceuticals in the United States? About $1,443 per person in the United States versus a range in the other affluent countries in the study of between $466 per person and $939 per person. Huge jump to the United States. Why? Well, they didn't look, right? Do we give too many pills? Maybe. They didn't look at that. But what about the cost per pill, theoretical pill? What about pharmacy benefit managers? What about all the price gouging that goes on in the United States? Why does that happen? Because we have overregulation, because we have third-party payers and no price transparency. But, of course, does this come out in the HAVID study? No, not at all. They choose to ignore all this, but the data are right here that prove – that there's that, that overutilization is not the problem. Fee for service is not the problem. Utilization management is not the solution. Quality measures are not the solution. ACOs are not the solution. It's all here in a study that you can read that shows the problem. And they talk about one other thing. Of course. Physician salaries. Right, this is all coming out again. Right, didn't I read somewhere? I didn't research it for the show that, that uh, doctors in Canada turned down their raise. They turned down their government-approved raise because of some, uh, you know, holier-than-thou position. The physicians are paid too much. Really? Well, the study says yes. Physicians are paid more than other countries. Right, average uh, generalist salary, um, $218,000 versus a range of 86 to 154. And that's all fine, well, and good, but they don't look at the whole picture. They don't look at the fact that American physicians have to pay for their own medical education and that the average debt of a physician coming out of training interest plus principal is about $400,000 and that physician salaries only take up – physician take-home pay only takes up 8% of the total healthcare pie. So once again, we have a study that's got some data, uh, but again, has been written more to serve an agenda than to communicate effectively. We're at the end of segment one. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
3: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. check with you this week. Next week, Dr. Hal is back as we begin segment two. So I guess I'll begin with an apology. I don't know. I have, Of course, the more I read that Harvard study we talked about at the end of the last segment, the matter I got, and you got once again a full-blown rant over how the uh, the intelligentsia at the top of the medical food chain still can't get it right still either can't understand or quite possibly refuses to acknowledge uh, the the gaping defects in their thought processes that lead to these editorials and special communications and uh, and what have you. But, but there it is, and I'm sure it will happen again, and when it does, I'll bring it to you and lose my cool all over again. I guess that's just the way it goes, but at least we'll keep you up to date on – What the the repeated failures of the top of the medical elite uh, continue to commit, so be it. But let's go ahead and move on now to what I promised you at the top of the hour I was going to talk about, which is to consider or at least acknowledge the potential utility of a change in strategy – Regarding how we approach healthcare reform. Because this is an election year, right? People ask, I don't say people ask me all the time, but people ask me once in a while, especially if we talk about the radio show, what I think is going to go on in the election, what role healthcare policy will play in this election year and the upcoming election as the months tick by and we get closer and closer to primaries. Uh, likely runoffs, and uh, the general election in November. And they say, well, what, what role is health care going to play? You think health care reform will come up again in 2018? And I will say in in the conventional manner, at least in the manner it came up in 2017, definitely not. The party in power tried and failed consistently to repeal Obamacare. In the end, what we got was a repeal of the mandate in a tax reform package which doesn't really amount to much and in fact it may actually damage uh, our efforts to continue to improve the healthcare system because now obamacare is not obamacare anymore it's trump care because you know, the mandate was one of the fundamental you know tenets of obamacare so without the mandate obamacare is not obamacare anymore and anything bad that happens can be blamed on repealing the individual mandate so you know not much good happened last year despite incredibly high expectations held by everyone, including me, uh, about what was going going to go on. So if health care policy is approached at all this year, or even next year for that matter, I think it has to be by a completely different approach, right? We've tried the political approach, right? The political approach was to say, okay, Obamacare, the passage of Obamacare was primarily a political event. Uh, it was a triumph of the left over everyone else and very little more than that. It was a government power grab. It was a government money grab. It was all of those things. Um, but in, in effect, it was really more of the same. It didn't really – there was no revolution in healthcare care policy there. It was just more regulation. Uh, it was simply a continuation of what's been going on for 50 years, which explains the effect of Obamacare on health care costs, which is that they continued to rise probably in the same way they would have anyway. That does mean that Obamacare did fail because it promised to reduce cost, right? Remember Obama even said $2,500 savings per family per year. Instead, it's gone up by three times that. So we know that Obamacare has failed, but what the proponents will say is, well, it would have been even worse without Obamacare. And then the debate just kind of deteriorates and there's really nothing good left to say. So we need another approach, right? That was the political approach. That was left versus right. Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, and that didn't get anywhere. So we try something else perhaps. And again, some of this was inspired by conversations I had with Marion Mass, so I'm happy to give her a shout-out and a plug about this. Uh, some of it had to do with the recent meeting that they had in Washington that Pete Sessions has every year. Um, they kindly invited me to speak. I couldn't make it up there, and they were kind enough to let me create a set of PowerPoint slides, video, the whole thing, and send it up there and then do the Q&A live. Uh, by go to meeting and that all worked very well, I think, and I'm grateful to them for uh, for putting up with that and, and allowing me to, to speak anyway. But part of what came out of all of that work was this idea that we need to change the approach from a political attack to a an economic analysis. Right? Let's get rid of the uh, the trenches. Let's get rid of the trench warfare. Right. You know, uh, conservatives, you know, dig a trench and 100 feet away, the liberals dig a trench and everybody just shoots at each other and but nothing happens. That's what's going on now. That's what's been going on since the 70s. So different approach is uh, forget about looking at the politics. Forget about looking at at legislation directly and just look at those parts of the health care system, which cost money, but don't return any value. And I got to give the lecture on electronic medical records and health information technology. Uh, That was my piece of the pie. There were other things that were covered, right? We talked – I talked about IT by remote video. Uh, Folks talked about pharmacy benefit managers, right, as another entity that costs a lot of money and returns very little value. And we've talked about that on the show before, right? We've talked about pharmacy benefit managers. We talked about the EpiPen scandal last summer, and so we're familiar with how those folks can charge a whole lot of extra money and return nothing of value. Um, I'm going to give you my health IT talk here to finish the segment and, and, and sort of restructure what you've heard before to develop health IT as something that costs a lot of money that returns very little value. Um, we know that insurance companies charge a lot for, for non-high-risk or non-catastrophic events, right? For routine checkups. For bumps, bruises, skin needs, routine diabetic care, uh, you know, routine coronary artery disease care that insurance companies give very little value because they're not managing any risk, right? We know that folks will go for regular checkups. We know that folks measured over a 10-year period will always be using health care. And so, you know, to manage health care, you know, to manage 90% of health care in an insurance model simply doesn't work. So insurers are another thing for most of health care that – that uh, you know you you pay two hundred dollars extra in benefits in order to obtain coverage for your routine health exam that only costs a hundred dollars if it were priced properly. Even less really. So they add very little value in that paradigm. So the idea is instead of coming at this as a, you know, defeat the grid Democrats repeal Obamacare, as emotionally satisfying as we may find that, really is not an intelligent approach. And we know it isn't because theoretically it doesn't make any sense, and we know it isn't a good approach because they tried it last year three times and failed three times. So it's time to go with something else. So let's look at pharmacy benefit managers and do something to to diminish their impact uh, let's have transparent pricing. Let's do things to allow people to pay cash, and and that when when someone's uh, cash price for a drug is less than their copay, allow the pharmacist to discuss that with the patient. Because right now they have gag clauses and they can't allow pharmacists to discuss that with patients. So that if your cash price is cheaper, pay the cash price. And there's lots of other things. You know, PBMs is not my area of expertise, but there are folks that know more about this than I do who can tell you how we diminish and hopefully someday eliminate that cost. Um, Same thing with insurers, right? If we have, you know, we've talked about direct primary care as that solution. You want to get rid of, you know, all the money that insurers skim skim off the top for care you know you're going to receive, right? It makes no sense to use an insurance model. You know, let's do health savings accounts. Let's do direct primary care. Let's allow us to use our health savings accounts to pay for direct primary care. Lots of neat stuff out there going on with that. And uh, and then I got to give my talk on health IT, so I'm going to summarize that for you and finish out the segment. So here's the talk in a nutshell. Right, we started off talking about uh, the, the the promises that EMR made to the medical community and to the whole country back in 2009 through 2013, and talked about how you know. It was supposed to be higher quality care, fewer errors, more efficient, less paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. The RAND Corporation promised we would save $81 billion a year if we used EMRs. That was back in 2005. Of course, none of that stuff has come to pass. And I reminded everybody the Meaningful Use Program was completely based on a single survey-based article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007 – uh, there were no objective studies to prove the safety and efficacy of uh, electronic medical records, and, and we've, we've paid the price. Uh, and, and I pulled an article that, that actually documents that uh, we've had significant safety issues linked to EMR usability or lack thereof. Uh, one study said that, uh, that errors in data entry was the most common Uh, cause of safety related incidents regarding patients. Uh, you know, the alerts that EMR uses, the fact that it uses too many and that they're poorly designed, which comes in second at 22 percent. Interoperability, 18 percent. Lack of workflow support, 7 percent. So, you know, not only have we demonstrated uh, that, that there's been no studies to prove that EMRs are safe and effective. There is a growing body of data to, you know, suggest what I've talked about for many years, which is that, you know, EMR introduces brand new sources of errors and brand new sources of patient safety concerns that haven't been studied, aren't well understood, and that, you know, we have a very, very significant problem there. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, things like, you know, the ER is a particularly uh, hazardous place to have an electronic medical record because, you know, a doc may be working on four or five different patients at once or more than that. Uh, you know, it used to be in the old system that you would talk to the nurse taking care of each patient and you had an extra set of competent brains helping keep things straight. You don't have that anymore with a computer. If you have a error in data entry in a computer and you you enter an order, for, you know, Mrs. Smith's CAT scan of the brain and actually instantly goes to Mr. Jones that, uh, you know, there's, there's precious little in the way to stop that error from going all the way through. You know, we've talked about the concepts of diagnosis momentum, right? Enter a diagnosis in the chart once it gets copied forever. Alert fatigue, right? Too many flags, you ignore them. Copy-paste issues. Um, and we've talked about all of this before, but the point is that, that EMRs have become an extremely expensive Proposition In an era when cost is the major issue in healthcare, and here we are spending a bunch of money, uh, and I even found another interesting thing that shows that the quality reporting that goes with electronic medical records not only has caused harm to patients – Right, the readmission reduction program says if you readmit a congestive heart failure patient within 30 days, you must have done something wrong so you get dinged. Turns out that program has increased 30-day and 1-year mortality for congestive heart failure. So we discovered that if you have a, a, a an incentive program that discourages you from a, a readmitting a patient with heart failure who's supposed to be admitted, guess what? They die. Well, you know, thanks for that. I'm glad we spent all this money and, and we far more sadly cost people their lives over a program like this because, um, you know, we, we've got the bureaucrats running the show. Uh, we'll finish this in segment three. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
5: Thank you.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
5: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org. Or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
5: This is Lawyer Liz. Join
2: me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays
1: at 2.
0: 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening.